Welcome back to the program. Perhaps it's only our popular culture, but the business of selling has certainly gotten a terrible reputation. Whether it's Willie Loman trying to be well-liked or Harold Hill going from town to town, or like Alec Baldwin in David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross, in which we hear the following. You can't play in the man's game. You can't close them. Then go home and tell your wife your troubles. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. A, I, D, A. Attention, interest, decision, action. Attention. Do I have your attention? Interest. Are you interested? I know you are. You close or you hit the bricks. Decision. Have you made your decision for Christ? An action. A-I-D-A. Get out there. You got the prospects coming in. You think they came in to get out of the rain? A guy don't walk on the lot lest he wants to buy. They're sitting out there waiting to give you their money. Are you going to take it? Are you man enough to take it? You see this watch? Yeah. That watch costs more than your car. I made $970,000 last year. How much you make? You see, pal, that's who I am, and you're nothing. Nice guy? I don't give a good father. Go home and play with your kids. You want to work here? Close! Selling in the 21st century is different. No longer is it just about sleaze and closing. It's about science and persuasion and information. Something all of us do every day and something that we must do, whatever our profession. This is the issue that best-selling author Daniel Pink looks at in his new book, To Sell is Human. Daniel Pink is the author of numerous previous books, including the New York Times bestseller Drive and A Whole New Mind. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Pink back to this program to talk about To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. Daniel Pink, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's a pleasure to be on the program again. Great to have you here once again. It's interesting in, in listening to that and in looking at what you write about and To Sell is Human, perhaps more than almost anything else in our culture, this difference, this reconception of what selling is all about reflects such profound change in how we do business, how we deal with each other today. Sure, sure. I mean, on a couple of dimensions, and, and I, I mean, the intro was brilliant because that's what people think of selling. They think of they think of those icons of pop culture, whether it's uh, you know Death of a Salesman or Harold Hill or uh, Blake, that predator shark-like guy in the movie Glengarry Glenn Ross. Um, but that's a different world, and that's a world where sellers always had a lot more information than buyers. When sellers have a lot more information than buyers, and when buyers don't have many options and don't have a way to talk back, the sellers have a huge advantage. This is the whole reason why we have the principle of buyer beware in our law and our custom. Um, when buyers don't have many choices, they can't talk back, they don't have any information, buyers are on notice. But what's happened in our world today is that the scales have shifted considerably. Now buyers have lots of choices. Uh, lots of ways to talk back, and more important, in many cases, they have just as much information as sellers. And that's a profound change. That's, we're now in a world of seller beware. So the sellers are on notice, 
And so those old ABCs that Alec Baldwin talked about, always be closing, that's an that's a effective technique in one world, but it's the wrong technique in this new world. And added to that is the fact that not only do we have this change in information, but all of us, when we look at what we actually do all day on the job, is a form of selling. So we're selling more, and, but we're selling in vastly different conditions. With respect to that information asymmetry you're talking about, I had a conversation once with, with a guy that ran a car dealership, and one of the things that he talked about is that people coming to the lot today had more information and knew more about the vehicles and the pricing than most of the people he had selling on the floor. Precisely. That's, I mean, car sales are the perfect, the perfect example of this. Um, you know, in the old days, if I went to buy, you know, 20 years ago, if I went to buy a, a Toyota Camry, uh, the Toyota dealer would know a lot more about Toyotas, a lot more about Camrys than I ever could. But now you go into that lot, I, I mean, literally, I can go in there, and I, mean, I, I, just, I actually just bought a car a few months ago. I bought a Prius, and, you know, I go into that dealership. I know what every dealer in Washington, D.C. area where I live is charging for Priuses. Pri, whatever they're called, for, for Priuses, uh, I can, I, um, I know what the going rate is for the trade-in that I was going to give to that that dealer. Um, you could, I interviewed a car dealer here in Washington D.C. who said that when she first started selling cars in the mid-1980s, the factory invoice price of the car, that is the document that showed what the dealer paid for the for the auto, was locked in the safe. Even the salesperson wasn't allowed to see it. Now, you know, your Aunt Gladys in Napa can walk into <laughs> a car dealership and, 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 you know, holding the invoice price of the car. And so car dealers are, you know, this, you know a great example of this change from uh, information asymmetry, which defined the sales relationship, to information parity, which is, I think, changed the game considerably. What does it mean that we have a whole new generation coming along that doesn't have the experience of... Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, or Harold Hill, or Willie Loman, or any of these other characters we were talking about—it's a that is a foreign concept to them. They don't know—they don't know that at all. I, I think it's generally a good thing uh, because what it means is that when they're in a seller, when they're in the position to sell something, and again, I'm using the term selling very broadly—selling right. your idea, selling your concept, selling your boss on doing things differently, asking somebody out for a date, pitching your idea, whatever. I think they start with the with the proper um, premise, which is that they don't have necessarily an information advantage over the people they're selling to, which means that the way that they sell, again, whether they're selling, go out on a date with me, buy my product, just listen to me for ten minutes, um, is 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 very different. And so, uh, and I think that's generally, you know, I think that's generally a good thing. This is a this is a generation that is used to having all kinds of information literally at their fingertips, at their thumb tips, uh, anytime that they want. And I think that's changing the nature of I think that's changing the nature of selling. And one thing that it's doing is it's it's um pushing sellers themselves more to the high road. So the Alec Baldwin character, the always the aggressive, uh, duplicitous, predatory kind of salesperson is really a relic. And the new way to sell is to deploy a new set of ABCs, which are, you know, attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. You got to be attuned to your customer. You got to be buoyant in the face of rejection, and you got to be super clear in how you frame messages, how you explain choices, uh, how you diagnose problems. And starting with the last one first, clarity and diagnosing problems. One of the other things you talk about is the importance of creativity even in the selling process because where we once thought that selling was at best about problem solving, 
you talk how now it's really about problem finding. Sure. I mean, that's, you know, again, that goes to your earlier question, too. Here's the thing. If you're, let's, let's talk about traditional selling, whether you're, you know, you're, uh, if I have a, um, um, I'll give you, give you an example here. So I'm sitting here, um, you know, in my house in Washington, D.C., and suppose I got this, this these, uh, a light fixture, and suppose a light bulb goes out in that light fixture. I don't need a salesperson for that. I just, you know, unscrew the light bulb, figure out what kind of light it is, and order it online, all right? I know exactly what my problem is, so I don't need a salesperson for that. But unless I'm wrong about my problem, <laughs> and my problem isn't that my light bulb is out, my problem is that there's not enough light coming into my house. My problem is there's a problem in my electricity system. And so, so, so a salesperson who wants to get business from me has to be able not to solve my existing problem, because I can do that on my own, but has to be able to surface latent problems, has to be able to, to, to find hidden problems, has to be able to discover problems that I don't realize that they have. And that's a skill, it's actually in the psychological literature, uh, called problem finding. And one of the things that comes out in this research which is so interesting. It, some of it's done by the legendary uh, social psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Um, is that the very best artists were what, what made them the best artists were that they weren't trying to solve existing problems. They were actually coming up with new problems to solve in their art, and that made them more creative. And I think that that level of creativity, as you're suggesting, Jeff, is what makes us better sellers today. It also requires a different kind of person, or the view of a different kind of person, as as the penultimate seller. And you talk about the research being done by Adam Grant at Wharton, for example, that the traditional extrovert that we think of as the ideal salesperson is not necessarily the ideal. Precisely. I mean, there is, you know, you know, there is this supposed extrovert advantage in selling. Um, and what the research shows is that extroverts are more likely to go into sales. Extroverts are more likely to get hired at sales jobs. Extroverts are more likely to get promoted at sales jobs. The only wrinkle in all of this is that when scholars have looked at the link between extroversion and sales performance, that is, who actually sold stuff, uh, the correlation between extroversion and sales performance was essentially non-existent. And so um, Adam Grant, as you mentioned, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, did some really remarkable piece of research, and here's what he did. He went to a software uh, company and had a large sales force, and he measured the introversion extra level, extroversion levels of the sales force, and then the sales force went out and sold software. So we knew who the extroverts were, we knew who the introverts were, and we knew how much software they sold. And what he found out was kind of surprising. Well, some of it was surprising. Uh, what was less surprising is this. Strong introverts, terrible salespeople. They were awful. They didn't want to pick up the phone. They didn't want to assert. They were too quiet, uncomfortable in social situations. Strong introverts were pretty bad. But what Grant found out, which I think is more interesting, is that those strong extroverts, they weren't much better. And those strong extroverts are the people we think are the naturals. You know, the people with the patter, the pat on the back, grinning, hey, buddy, what can I do to put you in a Ford Fiesta today kind of guys. They weren't much better. And the reason they weren't much better is that they talked too much and listened too little. They pushed too hard. They came on too strong. And what Grant found is that the people who did the best, the very best, were people in the middle, what are known as ambiverts, A-M-B-I, ambiverts, like ambidextrous. And it's the people who were a little bit introverted, a little bit extroverted. Those people did by far 
the best in, in selling. So if there was an advantage, it wasn't an extrovert advantage. It was an ambivert advantage. And the reason for that is that ambiverts tend to be much more attuned. I mean, if you go to the prefix, the ambi prefix, which we associate often with ambidextrousness, you know, they can move left and they can move right. That's what made them effective. They know when to push. They know when to hold back. They know when to speak up. They know when to shut up. And it was those ambiverts who were the most effective. They were the most attuned. They were the most versatile. I think the good news for all of us is that when you look at the distribution of introversion and extroversion in the total population, a few of us are very strong introverts, a few of us are very strong extroverts, but most of us are ambiverts. Most of us are a little bit of both, which suggests that you know the way to be effective isn't to be that kind of super gregarious, aggressive gladhander, but to be a slightly better version of yourself. The other aspect of that is that the person that is being sold to is going to be more comfortable with somebody that is more like them, more similar to who they are in terms of, of their comfort level. Exactly right. And I think that one of the, what, there's some very interesting research on this um, that, that shows that that ability to adapt to other people, to reflect what they're doing, to use their language, is an extraordinarily effective in any kind of persuasive, um, any kind of persuasive effort. There's, a, there's actually a really important uh, award-winning paper uh, by a guy named, another Adam, a guy named Adam Galinsky, uh, who's now at Columbia, who the, the, the title of the paper is uh, uh, Chameleons Bake Bigger Pies and Slice Bigger Pieces. Um, and so, you know, we, we have this, when we talk about people being chameleons, uh, it often has a negative connotation, but what his and other research has found is that people who are able to attune themselves to others um, are much more persuasive, um, not because they're being duplicitous, but because they're really understanding where other people are, are coming from. And that quality of attunement, that ability to take someone else's perspective, is enormously important in any kind of persuasion effort, whether you're selling a car, whether you're selling an idea, whether you're trying to get your boss to do something, because you know today we have far less coercive power. and You, you can't command people to do things on the job or in the marketplace. So what you have to be able to do is see the other side's perspective and find that common ground. One of the interesting aspects about this, and you've talked about this, is the, the degree to which large corporations in, in corporate America today and business schools are not themselves attuned to these changes, <laughs> or if they are attuned, they're not doing much about it. Right, right. It's actually, I shouldn't laugh, but it's kind of remarkable um, if you look at one of the things that got me interested in this whole topic of sales was, you know, I, 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 I started getting interested in the topic and wanted to learn more about it. And I discovered, to my amazement, that most business schools, and certainly the elite business schools, don't teach sales. It's just amazing to me. You know, this idea that you know, making the cash register ring is somehow incidental to commerce. It's crazy. Uh, a few of them, you'll be, you know, you'll be happy to know, will... We'll, stoop to teach sales management, where you can learn how to manage the great unwashed who keep your company in business. But most of them don't teach sales. It's kind of remarkable. And I, and I think there's always been this bias against sales as not only you know, duplicitous, but something that you know, the smart people don't do. Um, if you're really talented, if you've really got a good head on your shoulders, you become a lawyer or an accountant or an engineer, and the, you know, the dumb jocks go into sales. And I think that's a completely, completely misguided way to look at it. I, today, especially, sales requires, of anything, sales requires um, 
um, a versatility of skills, um, a, a range of capabilities, uh, a degree of intellectual and emotional acuity that is actually quite spectacular. The other part of that is that, that in an information-based economy and, a, and an entrepreneurial one, which is essentially what we are living in today, everything becomes about sales. It's another big factor. I mean, if you look at the forces, you know, you know, in this book, To Sell as Human, I, I, I did some survey research trying to figure out how much time are people spending persuading, influencing, convincing, selling in some sense, whether you know, money's changing hands or not. And we found that across the U.S. workforce, people are spending about 40% of their time selling something in some way. And um, um, people are spending an enormous amount of their time, uh, the enormous amount of their time uh, doing, this, doing this sales function. And uh, I think it's flying beneath the radar that, that we're not realizing how much of our time we're spending doing this and that we can actually use some of the social science to get better at it. You make the point that even sending an email is selling with respect to whatever you put in the subject line. Sure. I mean, I think what's cool about this is that, you know, even though we don't have, even though not many business schools teach sales, there is some scholarship on sales per se. Uh, And some of it's actually quite interesting and quite good, but a lot of it comes from a world of information asymmetry. But there is a whole range of scholarship. You know, we've mentioned some of the scholars before, uh, you know, earlier in the conversation. Uh, social psychologists, cognitive scientists, linguists, uh, to some extent computer scientists as well, who have done a whole range of research about how people are persuaded, how people understand other people's perspective, how you bounce back from rejection, um, how to frame messages. And it really yields some very powerful clues. And, and your example of the email is, is a really good one. There were some researchers at Carnegie Mellon who studied what makes an effective email subject line. Because sure, every email, let's face it, is a pitch. It's a plea for attention and, and an invitation to engagement. And uh, they found in their research, a really, really quite interesting research, where they actually sat with people, sat behind people, and watch them as they went through their email, and those people narrated why they're doing opening certain things, ignoring certain things, deleting certain things. They found that email subject email subject lines that got opened appealed to had, had had one of two qualities. They appealed either to utility or to curiosity. So utility is the email subject line was very clear, um, very very clear about how it was going to be useful. In your in your work, um, so if you you know your producer might could, could send you an email saying three questions three you know three cool questions to ask your guest on Thursday you'll probably open that because you know it's going to be exactly relevant to your work so that's utility. The other principle is curiosity. If it piques curiosity, if if it if it reveals uh, if it, if it suggests that this is something that's going to be really cool and really interesting. Um, without revealing too much or being too opaque. And so, um, so you want to appeal in your email subject lines to utility or to curiosity. Uh, a good example of the curiosity principle is President Obama, whose campaign sent out gazillions of emails, both in the 08 and 2012 <laughs> election cycle. And he... Hey. The, uh, yeah, exactly. The, the most open email that he sent, that the campaign sent, was in 2012. It was an email where the sender was Barack Obama, and the subject line was simply, hey. Um, 
So I remember getting that email. I opened I it. Whoa, too. I got an email from Barack Obama saying, hey, I better check this out. Um, and so that's the principle of curiosity. Where we, where we fall down in our ability to engage via email, according to these Carnegie Mellon researchers, is when we occupy the murky middle. So I send you an email that says follow-up. Um, you know, that kind of thing, rather than being explicitly about utility or explicitly about curiosity. So, that, that, so again, I think what's cool about this body of, of material is that there's some really smart, interesting, substantive social science, but it yields some specific things we can do in our lives to become more persuasive. So that, once I read that research, it really changed the way I send out emails. Part of being more persuasive, as we've been talking about, is also being more empathetic, more sympathetic, being able to understand, and the degree to which we can learn to do that. Talk a little bit about that, and is that a skill that truly can be learned? I mean, certainly it comes naturally to the Bill Clintons of the world, but can other uh, people learn that degree, any degree of empathy? Well, you know, I'm not sure we can learn to be like Bill Clinton. I'm also not sure whether we should all learn to be like <laughs> Bill Clinton, but... Um, um, but but leaving that leaving that aside, uh, there is this principle of of, of of attunement, and attunement is is very powerful. And, and, and actually, and, and just to be fair to Clinton, who I who I who I who I, I mean, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I worked for in in, in his administration. Right. Uh, I think that one of the the secrets to his leadership is that ability to attune himself to others, to really understand where people are coming from. It's really really powerful persuasive skill. Um, and it's really about perspective taking. Can you get out of your own frame of reference and see things from someone else's point of view? And again, if you go to the social science that studies this, you learn some really interesting things. For instance, uh, in many cases, feeling powerful distorts your perspective taking skills. So when people feel powerful, their perspective taking abilities generally degrade. And so one thing you can do is, let's say if you're a boss or a teacher, is when you're trying to persuade somebody and you're in a position of nominal power, before you go into that encounter, you say, um, you know what, even though I'm the teacher, even though I'm the boss, maybe I'm not as powerful as I think. Maybe the student has you know, a lot more influence than I imagine. Maybe, my ability, maybe if I'm a boss, this employee needs us a lot less than we need him. Um, and so if you lower your feeling of power, you can become more acute at seeing other people's perspective. And the reason, again, that's so important is, is that no matter where we are, marketplace and an organization, to some extent even in a family, we have far less coercive power, far less kind of commanding power. And so we can't dictate to people what to do. The way you have to persuade people is to find common ground with them, and that requires being attuned. So lowering your feelings of power before an encounter, if you're in a position of one-up power, can be really effective. Um, there's also some really amazing evidence, I hinted at it before, showing that uh, when you mirror um, people's uh, gestures and, and, and um, posture uh, and facial expressions, you can, become, you can actually understand their position. It's very different than the, the Tony Robbins or the Stuart Smalley approach, where you take this self-esteem to extremes. Well, yeah, that's another point, too. I mean, this is, again, some really, really cool research on that, too. Uh, we tend to th- we tend to think that um, um, that the, like let's say you're going into a sales call or again think about something that isn't sales explicitly you're asking somebody out on a date or you're trying to get your friend to help you move all right you're just in a, it's a persuasion effort uh, the conventional view is that what we should do in our self talk 
is the Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough, I'm wonderful enough, or the Tony Robbins. We should pump ourselves up. You're awesome, you got this, you can do this. And what the research shows is that that kind of affirmative, positive self-talk is actually more effective than doing nothing, than going in neutral. But it's not as effective as what's called interrogative self-talk, which is going into an encounter and not saying beforehand, you can do this, but actually turning it into a question, saying, can you do this? Um, and so interrogative self-talk, if I, go, if I ask myself, can I do this before, say, a sales meeting or something like that, I say, well, yeah, I can do this. I've done this before. Yeah, I can do this. I know this material inside and out. I've got to make sure to mention these two points. Yeah, I can do this. Uh, Fred over there you know, is always a, an opponent of anything that I say, but I've got this killer argument to persuade Fred. Can I do this? Yeah, last time I talked too much and listened too little, so I've got to make sure that I quiet down a little bit. And so with this interrogative self-talk, you're actually preparing, rehearsing. And so it actually is in some ways, many ways, more muscular than the kind of self-affirming, chest-thumping, positive self-talk. Right. I mean, that's part of the social cartography that you talk about, the ability to walk into a room and, and have a pretty clear understanding of who's who and what's going on. Right. I mean, there's some really good salespeople are really amazing at this. They can, they can go, as you say, they can go into a room, they can figure out who the decision maker is, how people are getting along. And there's some things, you know, there's some ways that what we can do is sort of reverse engineer that, what I think is a very instinctive skill among top salespeople, where you can go to a meet, you know, go to a, you know, if you're in a big organization, go to, you know, go to a few meetings and just mark down who's talking and who's talking to whom. And over time, you'll see a map emerge of, 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 of influence. And again, it's a way to attune ourselves to not only other people, but to environments, to circumstances, to situations. And finally, how do you see this, if at all, being incorporated into business schools, into big business? I mean, the reality is, is going to catch up at some point. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think that more and more businesses are beginning to shift gears a little bit and recognizing these changes in information um, asymmetry. Um, so, you know, now you walk into a car dealership and the common question would be, what do you already know about the car? So instead of trying to fight this information parity, basically embracing it and being more about service, more about problem finding, I think in business school is interesting. The curriculum in business schools in general is 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 changing significantly. And I think it's inevitable that business schools are going to have to take um, uh, take account of, of persuasion and influence uh, and, and selling and treat it as something on an equal plane as operations, finance, and strategy. Because when these young MBAs get into companies or start companies, they're going to be spending a lot more time persuading and influencing others than they will be spending strategizing. Daniel Pink, the book is To Sell as Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. It is just out in paperback from Riverhead Books. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.